You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. The Trek Files, Season 11, Episode 11, Point of Extinction, May 15th, 1973. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back, Trek Files. Trek of Files, I should say. All of you there with an F. Hey, you and I, you know what I mean. Our, you, you, uh, history buffs from Star Trek. And look, the, the craft of writing is going to come into play today and pitching and all that back in. Because as much as the tech has changed and the series have come and gone, the basic idea of how to string a story together and then how to communicate it to get it sold much less deliver it in the end. That's a craft that's that's changed very little over the years. And that's where we're going today. And you know what? In honor of, as we continue to look at the 50th anniversary of the animated series, we're actually going to go to that realm of Star Trek. So look, um, I've got a new guest this week. So you know what to do. Or if you don't, you go to our page on Facebook, facebook.com slash the Trek Files. That is where we actually have our Trek file of the week every week. They're always there. The um, you're, you're listening to us, of course, but hey, that's where our documents are. Take a look at the documents of the week. We've got some interesting pieces. Now, hang on. Here's an audio sample, but stick around, and I'll be right back with this week's guest. It is night, and several of our characters are sitting around the kitchen slash rec area talking. Arguments ensue. No one notices the air regeneration and distribution monitor, which registers creeping nitrous oxide, laughing gas effect. Even Saris is quickly affected. When they realize the problem, Scotty and Vashi rush crazily into the equipment room, where null gravity exists. Pandemonium. Pandemonium. That could be the. That should have been the name of an episode somewhere along the way. Out of fifty years. Well, Truckophiles, I'm so glad you're joining me today. Yes, this is from the animated series era. Although you almost wouldn't, you, if you're looking at our documents, there's a lot of story here. But if you're reading the story and wondering where in Star Trek it was, it wasn't. This is another out. This is another entry out of our pot of unsold pitches, or sold but not produced pitches. And the author of this one is who I wanted to talk to about it because we've got him here. Well, he worked on Xena and Hercules and, yes, and even later on on Voyager and DS9. Sold some stories across several series. I'm so glad to have him here to talk about this story and, uh, and the process. Paul Robert Coyle. Paul, thank you so much for joining us uh, on The Trek Files. Well, it's good to be here, Larry. And uh, <laughs> this is uh, something. Remember, this is 50 years ago, okay? Uh-huh. I was a student of Dorothy Fontana's at a writing class at Los Angeles City College. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're talking about the Dorothy Fontana. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is, yeah. This, I, was, I was a kid in Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island. And all through high school, I, I, I would, developed an interest in writing for television. And there was a, I was sending stuff long distance to one particular show that, uh, that took submissions of that nature, which was a Western, a long-running Western, Death Valley Days. And they oh, yes. looked at it. Uh-huh. It was it, well, at that point. It was on the air for eighteen or nineteen years on the radio before that. And I sent the material, and they kept responding to it. They didn't buy anything, but these stories were all based on real life 
Western incidents, and I, I was keep I kept going down to the library and researching these things and sending them scripts and outlines. Anyway, that was encouraging enough for me to consider moving to LA when I went to college, and then I found out wherever I found which that, that which was a big leap, ta- a big leap. Yeah, talk about uh, wagon train to the stars. That was a wagon train getting yeah. West Coast. Well, I did it, yeah. and I found out that Dorothy Fontana, DC Fontana, was teaching a writing class. Not a believe me, it was not how to write for Star Trek. Not how to write science fiction. It was a how to write one-hour dramatic episodic television, specifically my area of interest. So I signed up for that class. I don't remember. That might have been great teachers at USC and UCLA, but I, you know, I knew the name T.C. Fontana. Not because I was such an avid Star Trek fan, by the way. I mean, I was. I watched it when I was a kid. But by that time, the show was over. It was dead and gone, and you know, nobody expected it to return. Mm-hmm. So I here I am in the fall of 1970, and I'm taking a weekly class with D.C. Fontana, which was great, you know, and she was very actually was writing all these shows at the time, like Bonanza, Lancer, long forgotten shows like the Delphi Bureau and mm-hmm. so forth, but I was getting to live vicariously by hearing her experiences writing for all these shows, and then we, the students, would write our own stuff, and she would uh, critique them. Sure. All right, yeah. so this, this goes on for a few years. This was a one- a, a night class once a week. <clears throat> All right, so um, I guess I turned a two-year college into three because uh, we get into 1973, and the animated Trek became became along. All along, she would mm-hmm. talk about her experiences on Star Trek, but no more so than on any other shows that she had been involved with. All right, so now uh, I guess I started to hear before other people that the, there was a possibility of Star Trek returning in animated form. And because she was hooked into it, and as you know, Roddenberry wanted uh-huh. her on board. So at some point, and this is 50 years ago, so forgive me that all the details are clear in my head, but she, um, I guess I was a promising enough student that she gave me an opportunity to pitch mm-hmm. ideas for this animated show. There was a writer's strike at the time, so a lot of writers couldn't write for network shows, but could write for animation. A lot of the original Star Trek writers were were now coming in, they were going to do episodes of this half-hour um, animated show. I had never considered writing for animation. My focus was on prime time, you know, live <laughs> action. But here was an opportunity. Um, all right, fine. So somehow I got an assignment, and that assignment became the, the alien bounty hunter who um, comes on board, and he's got a warrant for McCoy's arrest because of some... Um, plague or something that he had accidentally unleashed 20 years ago that killed a bunch of people that he didn't even know about until now. That became an assignment. Now, as your viewers or fans of that show will know, that episode was done in the second season called Albatross. My early right. version of that was called Albatross. All right. I, w- I went through several, I kept changing the title um, stupidly. Anyway, it was an assignment and I did get paid for the story, but then it went into limbo. Um, and I wasn't, you know, the next step would be to go to script. I was paid for the story. They now owned the story. But uh, weeks were going by. Meantime, I was still going to class. Now, you sent me a, a document uh, called Point of Extinction. Now, that was also right. the title of the Bounty Hunter story at one point. I, I remember coming up with the title. I didn't remember using it for a separate story. And I think I can explain it. When you sent me this 12-page sheet, what we would now call a beat sheet, I, I recognized the typing and, and the, the, uh, the typewriter that I used and the paper, and it's definitely, I wrote it, 
And I don't remember this story at all. It had nothing to do with the bounty hunter story. Well, that's what was I was going to ask you, because, yes, we know Albatross is about McCoy being accused of causing this plague. And your bounty hunter turns into after they leave the planet. It's it's not like he comes and finds. Him. I was I was rewatching. And it has a very interesting person attached down as writer credited this Dario Finelli, who has two credits on IMDb and the other one kind of a. Yeah. First of all, my guess is that was somebody's pen name. I don't know. Right. The story is my my understanding is that. Both Roddenberry and uh, Dorothy were gone for the second season. Other people at Filmation took over the show at that point. They must have pulled my story off the shelf, which they had paid for and they owned, and they must have given it to somebody else, whether that person's really named Dario Finelli, I don't know. But somebody else took that over and got the credit for it. Now, that's unethical, but, but uh, <laughs> you know I can't blame Roddenberry or yeah. Dorothy. They were gone, apparently. But he cut this. He didn't pick the story up. I found out years later because of Mark Cushman's uh, research that NBC had greenlit my story for that bounty hunter story, and so that all they needed now was Roddenberry to sign off on it. But he was dragging his feet, and he ultimately, uh, you know, was torn between my story and another writer's story. Um, as we know, the other writer ended up getting the assignment, so that guy wrote that script. And then a year later, they ended up doing some version of my script, which I didn't even know about because I didn't find out about it for years. The, the experience of being cut off, like, oh, oh, and then what I did was after being cut off and the, the summer came and the Dorothy's uh, weekly classes ended. So I wasn't in contact with her all the time. And I was antsy, not having gotten the go ahead. And I said, well, why don't I just write it? And I wrote a script based on that Mounty Hunter story, which ended Proved. Which they bought, right? They, they owned, bought the bounty. They owned, yes. but they hadn't told me to go ahead and write the script. I wrote the script. This is a cardinal sin. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was a naive kid, and I was uh, too anxious. I sent it to Dorothy, and the next thing I know is I get a rejection letter saying that Gene refused to pay for it because he hadn't authorized it, and it was cutting off the story. So this was devastating to me. Uh, by the way, I recount all this in my book. I have a book, Sword, Starships, and Superheroes. All my writing for for Trek and Cena and all the show, all my career. So with the, with the detail, as much as I could remember about about that story. So, But, but let's just clarify, too. You're what, 20, 21? At that here? time, 1973, I was 21. Yeah. I had gone to a, a, a sci-fi convention at the Ambassador Hotel, very pre-Comic-Con, but they had a panel devoted to the uh, animated show, and I was in the audience, and they announced my name as one of the writers, right? So I was... On cloud nine, right? I was officially uh, suddenly a Star Trek writer. Wait, that's that's how you found out you'd sold your story. No, pitch? no, no. They, I knew through them, and they paid. They paid me. All right. I, oh, okay, I, okay. Just hearing it out loud. Hearing. Yeah, this. at some point in there, I went to that convention. All right, but I didn't know that they had cut it off. That Roddenberry had decided against it. I, she didn't notify me. I just was uh, waiting. This class isn't ended, and uh, next thing I know, I set the script in. And then a week or so later, I got it back. So as far as I know, they never read it. And I doubt that it would be in his files unless the secretary possibly opened it and automatically made a Xerox of it. But I don't have that script anymore. I got so frustrated and disappointed with the whole situation that I threw it out years ago. I didn't want to think about that experience. A few years went by and I, you know, really sold. I started a career, you know, in one hour dramas. But at the time in 1973, that whole incident was 
pretty devastating because I told everybody, oh, I'm writing a, this is a, this is a Star Trek, you know, and right. ready, it'll be on Saturday mornings. Well, it would have been your first professional sale, Oh, it absolutely too. would have been. Yeah. I mean, technically yeah. it was because I, I was given an assignment and it was paid for it. And the story was apparently good enough that a year later they decided to do a version of it without giving me credit. But that's water under the bridge. Alan? And, but what's, yeah, I was going to say, so that's all, we're all talking about this, the Albatross story. Yeah, the Albatross, well, it was called Albatross, it was called something else to begin with, and then it was called, I'm pretty sure at some point I called it Point of Extension. And I'm pretty sure that the Bounty Hunter story is the one that I wrote that spec script about and sent it in. I was proud of that script, by the way. I thought I did a good job on it, but as I say, I don't think they ever read it because they didn't told me to write it. So were you, I was going to say, so were you a little shocked? shocked. Were you a little, yeah. to see this, to see, surprised? Totally surprised. You sent me a document dated uh, May 15th, 1973. Right. This would have been in the last weeks of Dorothy's class, just before the summer came and club school ended. And it's called Point of Extension, and I've got the production number that they have given me, but that's the production number for the Bounty Hunter story. This is a totally different story. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of an ice station zebra kind of thing. Oh, by the way, the, the thing about the, the um, Bounty Hunter story was that uh, Roddenberry had wanted a, a McCoy story, a story to service that particular character, and he was the lead in that particular story. So here's what I think happened that caused me to come up with a whole new story under that title. And I'm just guessing, but it's kind of an educated guess. My guess is that while, while I was still seeing uh, Dorothy every week in class, she probably said, I probably said, when am I going to go to script? You know, I was anxious. Yeah. And uh, she probably said, Gene is on the fence about your story, but he still wants a McCoy story. Maybe she encouraged me to come up with something else. She would not have told me to write an entire beat sheet <laughs> based on a totally yeah. different story, but I can see that I might have done that and turned it in. It's like, a, you know, but from one week to the next, and then I came back with 12 pages. Look, I have a new McCoy story. Maybe, maybe he'll like this better. This, in reading this, not a great story. <laughs> it's a, it's a, I had to read it several times to even make sense of it. I was a, I was a boy, I overwrote everything. You know, I, sometimes I mentor or teach uh, students at UCLA and I would be telling them, you got to cut this in half, cut the verbiage. And you get <laughs> it's uh, cluttered yeah. with characters. It's a McCoy story. That's the only similarity to the Bounty Hunter story. McCoy is a lead. In fact, he and Scott are the only two characters at all who appear in this story there's no there's no enterprise at all kirk or spock no, or anything apparently yeah. mccoy and uh, he's been dropped off to this ice planet uh, to go to a, a federation outpost to give medical exams to the people there and and then he gets involved with a cross-section of um, aliens who work on this the scientific station and they're, they're all at odds with each other and bickering with one another and he has to get them all together to come uh, solve a common problem I guess that's the story. That's a that's a really well. There's a couple of things. Number one, it's it's got a lot of scope. I was sitting here thinking, well, if you're writing this for the animated series, this would have been like an hour long live action with all the characters and the scope and the ice planet and under the dome and running. And then the character that's insectoid that becomes uh, that goes into a cocoon basically yeah. was kind of. I could also tell though you were going for animation, but you've got a Tellarite and a Klingon and a Vulcan and always the mandate yeah. on the show. Yo, know, it had to be. Look, it had the advantage of you could do things you couldn't do with live action, and you couldn't afford on the budget of live action, okay. But there were severe restrictions, too. You could never have two characters talk to each other from 
more than <laughs> two or three exchanges of dialogue. Now, you couldn't go on for pages and pages with a static scene, no matter how well written the dialogue. Yeah. You had to keep things yeah. moving. Things had to be visual. So, um, for instance, in the bounding out of story, I think uh, at one point, the people on the ship, uh, the, the plague that he had supposedly unleashed 20 years ago, now strikes the people and they start changing colors. I remember, I think that was Dorothy's suggestion. That would be visually interesting for the mm-hmm. cartoon version. And in this, um, the, the, the alien who spins a cocoon and goes into hibernation, which I have in here, I think was a suggestion of Dorothy's. That's the only single thing about this entire story that strikes me as familiar. As I say, I must have put it together in a, the space of a week as a backup <laughs> to the Bounty Hunter story and then forgotten right. about it. I mean, I turned it in. She, Dorothy has some handwritten notes on it just as she would every week and with whatever I turned. Right. But not a whole lot of them. Well, some of this, some of this looks like genes, like where he changes your your uh, your psychologist's name from uh, Laurie Meredith to Ballantine. That's, I think, genes writing. So, oh, I don't. I would be surprised. I doubt that. I I think all of this is Dorothy's. I reckon it's okay. Because okay. This, this is the way she would mark. She would return our work. It just it just looks like two different people are are marking. Oh, I didn't on. notice There's that. The ink person. There's a person in ink, and there's a person. I don't know. I doubt that she would show yeah. it to him if she. Well, if she read it, and if she liked it, she might have verbally pitched it to him. That's the way it would work. I never had any interaction with him. Did I, did I ask you when you were back in Providence as a kid growing up, were you a Trek fan? Because it seems like you jumped into this with both feet. Well, I was a Trek fan, yes. And I remember specifically watching it in 1966. But I would say no more so than I was a fan of various other shows on TV at the top. Right. But when you saw the catalog for L.A. City College and saw Dorothy Fontana right. writing a, a TV writing class, you went, oh, my gosh. Yes. Okay. Well, yeah. Dorothy Fontana from Star Trek, from Bonanza, from various other shows that she was doing at the, at the time. Yes. Uh, and then she, and you're lucky enough to hear her talk about that. And she would have guests. Roddenberry came once as a guest right. earlier on, right. a year or two before this uh, yeah. experience. Yeah. And this is, we're talking about... March and April is when the announcement comes down, and then it's I, we're talking about just the span of a month or two here. But it, so if you're turning it around in your youthful enthusiasm, that's awesome. What what gets me though is we've also got her little three. She must have been very serious about it because she's turned around and made a little two and a half page memo here that summarizes it for Jean. Uh-huh. Because we found this, I found this in a batch that we we've talked about elsewhere on the show of other people's pitches right. where she turns around and summarizes. It. So this first section here and she even renamed uh, the matrix as a as a wadget she just wadget whatever but she's kind of summarized your story and distilled it down but that to me shows how much she she cared about you know trying to get the story get it past gene and get it bought and get, and get you, attached to it. you didn't send me that document you, you sent me this troll page uh oh yeah. okay um well i'm i'm surprised again i'm glad i'm happy i I don't think this story was as good as the bounty other story, so I wouldn't blame him for passing on this one. But it just it just more or less adds to the mystery of uh, yeah. I wish we had the players around to ask yeah, what uh, you know, left, in the jumble. You know. And this is all in the mad rush to get the show set up, and with you know maybe you just got edged out by all those writers who were on strike that they knew for years that they were anxious to you know slip them a little cash while they weren't working. I had a legitimate assignment, so if I maybe if I'd done a little better job, I would have gotten the, the go-ahead instead of the other writer who who did. There was one other writer on a particular story that did get the green light for that season. 
by the way, there weren't that many episodes, I think. It was not like a 24-episode network primetime right. series, right? And right. then when they went to the second year, there were even fewer, I guess. Uh, right. But I never saw them until years later because, of, again, because of my experience, I avoided that show. I just put it in my past and moved on. Uh, many <laughs> and years had a, and had a Yeah, yeah, yeah. It had a very good career. What was the name of your book again? Uh, it's called Swords, Starships, and Superheroes. And it's from Jacobs Brown Press and uh, available through Amazon. And uh, yeah, right. people who read it seem to enjoy it. Yeah. It's about the career of a TV writer, not just about Star Trek, but I go into detail. I was a friend of Mike Pillars. So when he went out of that franchise, he brought me in. I did a bunch of uncredited rewrites in various episodes and then some credited ones. Uh, Whispers on DS9, story and co-writer. And um, no, that was a full a written state by. Of flux. That was a full written by. We did go to arbitration, but uh, the script has oh. Mike's name on it, but I won a full written by. So that's how it aired. There we go. And then State of Flux on uh, Voyager. That was a story, season. yes. I created the character of Seska, who became a recurring villain for a while. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Although I created her for my episode, they ended up putting her in a few earlier episodes so that she would be established. So by the time my episode that highlighted her came, uh, she wouldn't come out of nowhere. And do I dare say that you did you get paid no. character origination no, fees? No, because... Whoever put her in the first episode in a small role, mm-hmm. I didn't been the pilot. Even. I don't remember where she appeared first. I was the first freelancer hired on that show at all. Uh, it, was very, it was a very early pitch in that show's uh, history. It wasn't on the air yet. In fact, Jean-Abibou's show was supposed to be the uh, lead, so I thought right. I was ready for her. Yeah. Well, that's that's the early. Paul, listen, this has been so great. I, you know, we could talk. You've had a career, like I said. I love some of the other shows you wrote full time on. Also, your episodic. It's it's a it's a great look at how career works. And I would tell anybody that even though some of the, especially the issues of the strikes we just got through, have have shifted, but so much of the core of of the craft of writing and selling is is pretty much stayed the same, wouldn't you say? Well, yes, except that you can't make a living as a freelance writer anymore. Um, right. The business isn't, doesn't operate that way. Every show is, a, is overstaffed, is stuffed with staff writers, um, and there's no room for outside writers. So the way Dorothy made a living for most of her career, the way I did, going from show to show to show. not The way Gene started. Yeah. That doesn't exist anymore. I'm trying to miss it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, listen, thank you so much. I'm glad we were able to uh, bring out a surprise out of the closet here Definitely. and and, uh, and uh, <laughs> poke a few memories and talk about those times. And, you know, let's uh, sometime down the line, maybe have you back and talk about some of those other eras if we can. But for, for today, um, thanks for joining all us. All right. Anytime, Larry. Thank you. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. And all of our documents and your chance to comment are available at Facebook.com slash The Trek Files. Now, for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. Yeah, at LarryNibichek.com. That's me. Hey, that's where you can also link in for all the new Trek Files swag and shirts, too, at our Tee Public shop. Trek well, everybody. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com.